Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London, I'm Josh Noble. India's election has turned into an ideological battle, pitting an inclusive vision of a multi-faith nation against the view that Hindus should have primacy. Jotsna Singh discusses the tactics used by Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his opponents with Amy Kasmin and Stephanie Findlay. Summer is at its peak and the political temperature is adding to the intense heat. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been crisscrossing the country, giving fiery speeches, and so is Mr. Modi's main rival, Rahul Gandhi, the president of the opposition Congress party. Amy, it's a long and staggered election, but Mr. Modi is a tireless campaigner. What are the main issues he has been raising at his rallies? For Prime Minister Narendra Modi, this has been mainly an election focused on national security. In his first prime ministerial election campaign in 2014, he had been very, very focused on the economy. And he talked a lot about how he was going to accelerate economic growth and get a lot of jobs created to absorb young people trying to get into the workforce. But his economic track record has actually been really patchy, so it's not a very strong ground for him to campaign on. But the showdown with Pakistan in February in response to a terror attack in Kashmir that saw India lob missiles to an alleged terror training camp in Pakistan really switched the tone and nature of the campaign and diverted public attention away from economics to issues of national security. So Modi and the BJP have essentially been campaigning tirelessly on this idea that India is under threat, that it faces grave external and even internal threats, and that Modi is the strong leader that India needs to cope with these threats. These threats include the threat of terrorism from Pakistan. They include the threat of illegal immigration from India's neighbor Bangladesh. And then there is this insinuation that India is also under threat from internal enemies, ranging from India's Muslim minority to secular leftists and Naxalites, and that altogether the nation needs a strong leader to handle these challenges and threats, and that Modi, who is very much seen as a strong man, is the leader that India needs to handle these challenges. Congress Party's star campaigners are Rahul Gandhi and his sister Priyanka. How does their campaign compare to Mr. Modi's and what are their main arguments? Modi is definitely an absolutely relentless and tireless campaigner. He's a natural campaigner. One gets the feeling he probably really enjoys giving these speeches in front of these huge, adoring, cheering crowds. I'm not sure that Rahul Gandhi, the leader of the Congress, or his sister Priyanka, who's been drafted in as a star campaigner, share that love of campaigning that the prime minister has. They have struggled, I think, to find traction with voters. They were on a strong ground in December when there was a lot of focus on the poor performance of the economy, rural distress. And I think they're 
campaign strategy got a bit of a knock after the showdown with Pakistan and the conversation turned away from the domestic economic issues. But they have been trying to focus on domestic economic issues, Modi's alleged mismanagement of the economy, rural distress. They've unveiled this scheme that is supposed to see 72,000 rupees given to every poor household, a kind of a minimum income guarantee scheme that is intended to lift the poorest of the poor out of poverty. So they've been trying to focus on the economy and bring voter attention back away from these kind of ideals of nationalism and some threat to the very real issues of their own pocketbooks. Rahul Gandhi has also been trying to really smear Modi's image with a lot of allegations that he's a thief in connection with a controversial arms deal. We don't know which of these issues has really found traction with the voters. Was the Congress able to bring voters back away from the idea of we need a strong leader to defend us against these various enemies. There was real dissatisfaction with Modi on the ground among many voters who had voted for him in 2014. They were unhappy with his economic performance and they were inclined to, I think, vote against him, at least some. What we don't know and what will only be clear on May 23rd on vote counting day is which way they finally went. Rallies are just one way to reach out to voters. There are also colorful posters, multimedia advertisements, and song videos to make a strong push. But social media has emerged as a new factor in these elections. Stephanie, how are political parties using social media and what are the factors driving up its use in this campaign? So in 2014, Prime Minister Modi had already emerged as the king of social media in India. And from that time, his party has been laying the groundwork for a sophisticated political propaganda machine using social media, mostly using WhatsApp and speaking to party officials. They've said that they want to target every voter over WhatsApp. And it's with very specific messaging. Speaking to one former data analyst of the party, he said that voters are targeted based on class, based on caste, based on demographic information, based on past voting history. So what we have here is a very big, very targeted, and very coordinated campaign from the ruling party. And the opposition party just doesn't have the resources and they haven't been able to keep up. I suppose, you know, it's cheaper to do this sort of campaign over social media. You don't have to buy posters, you don't have to pay for ads, you just need a ton of people. And they certainly have that. I was talking to the social media head of Delhi, and he said in that one state alone, they had 70,000 people working on the social media strategy. So these numbers are just phenomenal, and uh, they're definitely going to have an impact on how voters perceive the issues. Modi. 
Since the last election, WhatsApp has taken hold in India, and it's now the company's biggest market. It has around 300 million users. Everybody uses WhatsApp for business, for fun, and the parties are also using it to spread their messages. They spread it with all sorts of content, with mostly memes, which are sort of funny, image-based jokes or comments and videos but the concern is is that sometimes the messages of these memes of these videos are quite divisive and polarizing along religious class and caste lines so fake news and misinformation campaigns have led to calls for regulation of content on social media how worrying is the trend? Well, we had already seen in Brazil that the president came to power on this wave of vitriolic, inflammatory content, and there was huge concern about the role that this sort of messaging was playing in Brazil's democracy, and there's a concern about the role this sort of messaging is playing in India's election, because these messages that are being put out by groups supporting the party are often polarizing, they're often divisive. Some of it is completely, as they say, fake news. You know, it shows the opposition leader Rahul Gandhi praying at a mosque, insinuating he's a Muslim to deter Hindu voters. Researchers studying this say the fear is that this sort of messaging will push India towards a more polarized climate, will drive up tension between interreligious groups, between castes. Both WhatsApp and the government have sort of flagged fake news spreading over WhatsApp and social media as an issue because we've seen in India there have been mob lynchings caused by WhatsApp rumors. So in response to this, this was last year, WhatsApp introduced a limit on the amount of times you can forward a message. But researchers studying WhatsApp in India say this has basically made no effect on whether or not messages can go viral. Also, we see this large use of WhatsApp by political parties, even though they may say, oh, we're concerned about the rumors. So there's an inherent kind of contradiction here between what the political party is saying on one level and how they're using it on another. And then also with WhatsApp, because they say they're trying to combat fake news. They say they're partnering with fact-checking organizations. But at the same time, they also want to expand further in India. And I'm just putting out a guess here, but eventually wanting to make money in India, too. It's a kind of very complex issue when you think of all of the different factors at play. Amy, would you characterize this election as one of India's most divisive so far? This campaign has really been something. India's democracy is often celebrated, but in some ways this election has felt almost like watching a match of worldwide wrestling where people are just slamming each other. There's been a lot of really intemperate language used, very undignified, lots of slogans, lots of hitting out at people. We've seen Rahul Gandhi insisting over and over that the prime minister is a thief, We've seen the Prime Minister come back and talk about Rahul Gandhi's father, a former Prime Minister who was assassinated, being like the number one corrupt person of the nation. We've seen Amit Shah, the president of the BJP, talking about illegal Bangladeshi immigrants as being termites. The tone of the campaign, it really hasn't necessarily been a very high-level exchange of ideas and contesting visions. It has been a lot of really personal attacks. We've also seen a Hindu extremist 
extremist who's been accused and still awaiting trial on charges of participating in a terror attack against Muslims who has been given a candidacy for parliament of the BJP. The prime minister has defended her, saying that anyone who suggested that she might have been a terrorist was defaming Hinduism and defaming all Hindus and defaming a 5,000-year-old civilization. So it's been a very intemperate campaign, hot-headed rhetoric, and I think it's rather unfortunate because I think, you know, Modi raised very high expectations and promises over the last five years. And this might have been a good opportunity to debate his track record, debate what he has delivered, where he has fallen short, what are the alternatives, what should be on the agenda for next time. And instead, we've just had a lot of fear mongering and insults. And the result is it's not very clear if the BJP comes back to power, what exactly is going to be on their agenda for a second term. And finally, are any of you willing to stick out your neck and predict the outcome of the elections? Who's going to win? Amy? No, I am absolutely not, because I've been here long enough to know that trying to predict the outcome of an Indian election is absolutely a mug's game. People may think they know what's going on, and people may say something to outsiders, but the fact of the matter is, India's electorate has a history of delivering big surprises, and people that really have their fingers on the pulse of this election and the electorate say that it's highly competitive, so even a tiny swing this way or that could dramatically affect the outcome. And I think that's why everyone is basically braced for May 23rd when the Indian voters will finally have their say. And you, Stephanie? Well, I just got here, so I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on India. But if WhatsApp is any indication, then I would say that the BJP is going to take the election. That was Jotsna Singh talking to Amy Kasman and Stephanie Findlay in Delhi. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer.